Well, it's great to see uh, all of you this morning. This is a great uh, uh, body of believers with uh, families. Uh, see, this is normally, this is typically our, our fullest service anyway, but even more so uh, with the children who are normally meeting in another space. And so it's a joy to welcome um, the kids here. In fact, I want to begin um, by asking a, a simple question. This is for everybody, though. Um, what is your favorite story in the Bible about Jesus? I'll give you a moment to think about that. You can tell your parents if you'd like to, but your favorite story in the Bible about Jesus. Now, I bet for some of you, you said you, you like the story of His birth because you understand that that means Christmas. <laughs> you see, our country places a lot of emphasis on Christmas. It means time out of school and good food and, best of all, presents, gifts. That's right. Well, maybe, maybe you're a little older and some other story came to mind, like all of those healing stories where Jesus healed a, maybe a blind person, like a couple of weeks ago when He healed a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. <laughs> or maybe it was a story of driving out demons, you know, like the time that He drove out a legion of demons and, and they went into a herd of pigs, which then ran into the sea. <laughs> we called that the Bay of Pigs. Speaking of the sea, maybe it was the time that Jesus calmed the storm when He and His disciples were, were in the boat. I picked this particular picture because it looks like Jesus is surfing. <laughs> or, or maybe it was the time that Jesus came uh, walking to the disciples on the water and, and Peter went out to meet Him. And that, that's a great, that's another cool story. Or, or maybe it was the time when, uh, when Jesus raised someone from the dead, like that little Remember that little 12-year-old girl? We don't know her name. Jairus was her daddy's name, but Jairus' daughter or the widow's son, the widow of Nain. Or, or maybe it was that time that he raised Lazarus uh, from the dead. He, remember, he called him right out of the tomb when he had been buried for, for four days, and Lazarus came um, hopping out of the tomb wrapped up in his grave clothes. Maybe, maybe you're a little older, and your favorite is the, the story of his of His death on the cross, because you know that story ends in His resurrection and provides eternal salvation for us. <laughs> there are lots of great stories about Jesus, but do you know what I can be fairly sure of? When I ask the question, what is your favorite story, I don't think anyone chose a story that we're going to look at today. Nobody. In fact, we selected this Sunday, a children's dedication Sunday, to be our first family worship Sunday. And so I, I looked ahead in Mark and thought, well, what am I going to be covering today? And I thought, great, I get to cover Jesus cleansing the temple. <laughs> okay, boys and girls, Jesus made a whip. <laughs> well, you probably didn't pick that story, but that's actually next week. There's another s story in our study of the Gospel of Mark that is quite challenging. It's the last miracle in Mark and is actually the only miracle of destruction. <laughs> like when he tears things up in the, in the gospel accounts, all of them. I mean, usually the nature miracles, Jesus is doing something constructive. He's calming storms. He's walking on water. He's feeding 5,000 with five loaves and, and two fish, a little boy's lunch. Or he heals people. He raises people from the dead or drives out demons. But this is the only story where he miraculously destroys something. Actually, he kills it. How's that for our first family worship Sunday? <laughs> I didn't pick the day. 
Read the text with me. It's found in Mark 11, verses 12 to 14. Then we're going to drop down and read verses 19 and following. On the next day after the triumphal entry, after Palm Sunday, when they had left Bethany, say at the end of Palm Sunday, they left and went to Bethany where they spent the night. On the next day, they're coming back to Jerusalem, and he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And so he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. So what happened? Well, look at verse 19. When evening came, they would go out of the city. So that was Monday, and they went out of the city. And Tuesday morning, they're coming back. And as they're passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered, saying to him, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes in that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for, for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. See? <laughs> Some of you didn't even know that story was in the Bible. This is a rather strange passage. I mean, if last Sunday was your first time in church, you maybe had heard about the triumphal entry. You maybe had even heard about the time that Jesus cleansed the temple. But what in the world is this about? It's, it sounds kind of odd, kind of, kind of petty, don't you, don't you think? I mean, you do understand what is happening here, right? It's kind of embarrassing. It's embarrassing to say it. Jesus got mad at a tree, He's hungry. It's been a couple mile walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree, goes up to get some breakfast, and there's no fruit. He, he looks at the tree and says, stupid tree, zap. And then the next morning, it's, it's withered from the roots up. I mean, he killed it. The, 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 the tree huggers in Oregon would not like this story. Good thing we're in North Carolina. I use this, uh, you could use this passage to condone all kinds of petty behaviors. I mean, if Jesus could get mad at a, an inanimate object like a fig tree not having fruit, I mean, can I get mad at, like, traffic? <laughs> I, feel, I feel good about myself today. Or maybe I could throw my golf clubs if I want stupid clubs. <laughs> or maybe I could get angry at a Carolina Duke basketball game. No, nah, that's a moral issue. Um, it, would, it would be like this. I, I'm driving along the highway. I, I get kind of hungry, and I see a McDonald's sign. I, I pull off the highway and, and pull in for a Big Mac, and it's, and it's closed. Fine, stupid McDonald's. Zap, you'll never sell another million. It's over, or billion. It's over for you. Burn it down. I mean, what is this? He's mad at a tree. There's got to be something more to this. It's kind of unsettling. This is the very first time Jesus uses his miraculous power to, to bring a cursing, not a blessing. Troubling. Every other time he stretches out his hand, he, uh, it brought blessing and, and healing and, and life. Not this time. Uh, this time, not blessing, cursing, not life, death, not healing, withering. The famous atheist, Bertrand Russell, 
in his work entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian, points to this particular story. That's right. I mean, he accuses Jesus of, quote, vindictive fury for, for their tree not producing fruit out of season. It's not the tree's fault. The, the story, Russell says, um, tarnishes Jesus' character. He writes, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. That's a problem. Even some authors friendly to Christianity have been puzzled by this particular story. One writes, um, it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper for the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of of figs uh, out of season. I mean, uh, why not just throw some fig newtons on the tree? I mean, I mean, he, it, like when he took five loaves and two fish and fed thousands. I mean, couldn't he just as easily grow some figs on a tree? What's the, what's the problem? We have a serious problem here, or do we? There's got to be more here. Last week, we began the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus began this final week with three symbolic actions that take place over three successive days. First, on Palm Sunday, we looked at last week, he rides into Jerusalem on a, not on a stallion, not in a chariot, not with soldiers or political figures or even priests, but he he rides in on a donkey. Not even a donkey, it's it's the cult of a donkey. And his, his disciples and followers, made up of formerly blind and lame and, and dead people, formerly dead, lepers, peasants, fishermen, tax collectors, and prostitutes. Wow. By this very entrance, while fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, Jesus was demonstrating He was a different kind of king, gentle, humble. His was a different kind of kingdom, not a Not a kingdom of military, political, or economic strength. His was not like the kingdoms of this world. The next day, Monday, the second symbolic action was that of cursing this fig tree. Although we don't read about what happens until the next morning, Tuesday morning. In between, we have the cleansing of the temple. We're going to look at that in the next week or two. So what we have here is another of Mark's famous, well, famous sandwiches, where he takes two stories and he weaves them together because they go together. That's important. What Jesus is doing in these two stories, cursing a fig tree and cleansing the temple, they go together. They're related. Maybe we do have something more here. I already gave you a hint. Cursing of the fig tree is a symbolic action. In in fact, maybe, just maybe, listen, cleansing The temple maybe isn't a cleansing at all. Maybe it, too, is a cursing. Give the outline before we go any further. We're going to see this problem presented in those first few verses, and then we're going to see this parable that is clearly implied. And then there's some principles stated. I intended to get through those verses this morning, but realized we need to spend a little bit more time on those so you can take a breath. That was one of the things that my letter said that I cut out when the elders told me to cut it, and that was shorter sermons. I thought everybody would come then. Let's begin with this problem. 
I didn't know much about fig trees when I started my study this week, but there's some important things that we need to know in order to understand this story, things that the Jews would have clearly understood. First, in Israel, fig trees were somewhat plentiful, and they were seen as a symbol of God's blessing. For example, back in Deuteronomy 8, as Moses is describing the land that they are about to enter, he describes it as a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. This is is a good land because it has lots of fig trees. That didn't do much for us, but it was important to the Israelites. Earlier, when the spies searched out the land in Numbers chapter 13, they brought back a bunch of Uh, stuff, a bunch of produce from the land as proof that it was indeed a blessed land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Remember that? Uh, They carried back three fruits, grapes, pomegranates, and figs. Zechariah chapter 3. There's this prophecy that Messiah, when he comes, would, would set up his kingdom and everyone would invite his neighbor to come and sit under his vine and his fig tree. You see, the fig tree was seen as a, as a symbol of God's blessing. Conversely, a barren fig tree or the destruction of a fig tree was seen as a symbol of God's judgment. That's critically important. Psalm 105, for example, is recounting God's judgment against against Egypt uh, through the plagues. Remember that? Water to blood and the frogs and the locusts and darkness and the death of the first. Well, you remember that, but but Psalm 105 talking about that says this, he, that is God, struck down their vines and also their fig trees and shattered the trees of their territory. I mean, that's a big deal. The Jews who are hearing this would say, you're kidding, not the fig tree. Jeremiah 8, and speaking of the judgment soon to come on the southern kingdom of Judah, We read, I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf will wither. You get the point. The presence of fruit-bearing trees was a sign of God's blessing and presence, and its absence was a sign of His cursing and judgment. They understood that. Jesus cursing a fig tree that had no fruit, they would have understood that too. Second thing we need to understand, it comes through a little horticulture lesson, lots of pictures today for the kids. The fig tree um, in Israel would typically grow to be about 20 um, feet high. In the winter, they would grow these little things called knobs, which would eventually become fruit. Then would come the leaves, usually in March or April, and then the mature fruit would follow that, usually around June. And so, so this is March or April, and Mark notes this was not the time for ripe figs is what he means, but it still should have had those little knobs, which were in fact edible, bitter but edible. Uh, the, the tree was in full leaf. It was an advertisement, if you will, find fruit here. So Jesus went to the tree looking for edible, unripe, but edible fruit and found none. This was a case of false advertising, like the golden arches being on, come and get breakfast, no breakfast. You'd be a little irritated. This morning, Jesus was making the two-mile trip from Bethany, um, probably from the home of, uh, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. We don't know if he skipped breakfast or the Pop-Tart didn't stick with him, but at this point, he's hungry. So, so he goes over to this lone fig tree by the side of the road. This tree is advertising breakfast, and he finds it empty. He found nothing, no fruit. 
had all the signs of life, all the signs of nourishment, all the signs of health. It looked good. It, it looked inviting. But for Jesus, it was of no value. It was worthless. It did not deliver. It did not deliver what was promised. So he rightly cursed it. You see, the truth is you cut down barren trees. If they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing, throw them away, no value. The story happened on Monday morning, at least the first half of it. And as Jesus and the disciples made their way to Jerusalem, Jesus sees the tree, finds it empty, curses it. They, they then go to Jerusalem where Jesus cleanses the temple. You see, it's the same thing. It's now Tuesday morning. They're on their way back to Jerusalem, and Peter sees the tree and says, hey, Jesus, look, the tree you curse, it's withered from the root up. The, the, the point here is this. Here, here in Mark, the story of cursing the fig tree surrounds the cleansing of the temple. Why? Because they're interrelated. They go together. One speaks for the other. That brings us then to our second point, the implied parable. This is an, this is an acted-out parable. Jesus uses this barren fig tree to teach an object lesson. Are you starting to get the lesson? Very simply, this fig tree represents those, listen carefully. This fig tree represents those who claim to be the people of God, the leaves, the, the religious activity that advertise that they are the people of God, and, and the fruit is supposed to prove that they are the people of God. The fruit is the evidence of true spiritual life. But we remember these stories are connected. Jesus curses the fig tree, then shows up at the temple and performs a symbolic act. This is supposed to be my father's house, and you've made it into a den of robbers. You're stealing from people's, um, uh, you're, you're stealing people's money, more, and worse than that, you're stealing their souls. The temple, used to be, you see, is supposed to be a place where people meet God. That's what the advertisement says. You've made it part of your system that is actually keeping people from God. It's an acted-out parable. But, but, but it looks good. It, it has all the leaves, all the signs of nourishment and health. It, it looks great on the outside. I mean, the temple was magnificent, all of the gold and the glitter and the activity and the sacrifices. I mean, look at all the people, hundreds of thousands of, of people who had come from hundreds of miles all around to participate in the activities there. And boy, their system, that looked pretty good too. I mean, look at all the hoops that they had erected that people needed to jump through. If you just follow our prescribed rules and our regulations, say the Pharisees, you'll be fine. Everything looks good from the outside. Lots of leaves promising life and rest. Great system, great marketing program. Only problem, no life of God there. Isaiah 29 says it this way, these people draw near me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. They're just going through the motions, no life. This was leaves without fruit, a case of profession without practice. This was all together meaningless and worthless. In other words, you cannot call yourself the people of God and not do what God tells us to do. For our purposes, you cannot call yourself a Christian and not act like one. Acted out parable. And he's cursing hypocrisy. Those who profess to be God's people but live unfruitful lives are hereby warned. Jesus 
said in this object lesson, lesson to the religious system, to the temple, to the nation of Israel, to any people, frankly to any church, which looks good but produces no real spiritual fruit, no spiritual life, he says judgment is coming. To ch- yes. He'll say it more directly in a couple of chapters. There's coming a day when not one stone, talking about the temple, will be left standing on another. And judgment, by the way, came. And Forty years later, in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus overran Jerusalem, carried off its inhabitants. The tree withered, you see, from the root up. It died, you see. Judgment came. Please notice, the tree was dead. It wasn't sick and needed healing. It was dead because there was no real spiritual life. Because God does not like show. He doesn't like us to look pretty green uh, with leaves advertising life, but offering no fruit. That's hypocrisy. God doesn't like it. What does this mean for us? God is never impressed with show, with the external facade of looking good. If you, are, if you as a person or we as a church, either way, if we flash signs of life, if we look good, but there is no life of God, no reality, if there is no f- fruit, I'm suggesting judgment will come. Well, James said it this way, faith without works, corresponding fruit is, is dead, it's, it's of no value. In in other words, you can't call yourself a Christian on Sunday and not act like it on Monday. And Jesus said it this way in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Conversely, if you don't, you won't because apart from me, you can do nothing. Must stay connected to, to Christ. We must understand this. If we look good, sign on the outside. We're even talking about getting a new one. New building, church here. We meet God here. And we are just engaged in religious activity, business activity that looks good. Lots of people showing up, doing churchy kind of things, but there's no life here. Like you can enjoy the fruit of real Christianity, the real life of God, but there's no life. You know, we're, we're advertising and people come, but there's no life. Judgment will come. How do I know this? Jesus warned a church in the book of Revelation about this very problem. To the book of Ephesus in chapter 2, he said these words, to the angel of the church, church, and Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds, pretty good, your toil, your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they're not and, and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and you've endured for my sake, that means endured suffering and and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you, you've left your first love, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at the first, or else, sounds like judgment language, it is, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Do you see it? This was a church full of deeds and toil and perseverance. In other words, they looked really good. 
They didn't look like evil men. Their doctrine was good, maybe even pure. They believed it right. They even did some things right. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. There are lots of green leaves, but there is no fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on. You are, you are busy with activity. You're doing it right, but you've forgotten about me, Jesus says. And notice he says, if you do not repent, judgment is coming. I will come and remove your lampstand. Your light will be extinguished and you will cease to exist. Go to Ephesus today, today, modern-day Turkey. The church is not there. Spiritual activity without corresponding fruit, without the reality of a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, without the reality of changed lives, without the reality of life-producing fruit, where people can come and actually meet God here, meet with God, that kind of activity is cursed. That's the point. I want to say to you very gently that I believe there are churches across this county and across this country that continue to meet social club, fellowship group of people who do some really good things, suppers or maybe even housing for homeless, cleaning up the rivers and the streams and fighting against social injustice and sending people around the world to do the same, to do good, but all along they forget Jesus and the gospel. Lots of leaves, no real lasting fruit, no life. All that brings us to our conclusion. I have a scary prayer that I'd like us to pray as a church. Ready? God, if we ever become a church with just leaves, going through the motions, advertising life, looking good, but there is no real life of God, no fruit, will you make us wither? You see, Jesus just made the tree become what it really was anyway. It was already fruitless and worthless. He just made it evident to everybody. God caused us to to come to life, to be alive, or remove our lampstand. Cause us to wither. Because if there is no life here, I'm suggesting, if there is no real spiritual life here, with, because we are a Christ-exalting, gospel-centered church, if we are not that kind of church, I'm suggesting we do more damage than good. Will you pray that prayer? Not only for this church, but for yourself as well. Jesus, make me real. Make me a fruit-producing Christian whereby the reality of God, of the life of God is, is seen in the fruit of the Spirit in a genuine walk of, of faith and, and power, reproducing myself in the lives of others. Would you please make me real? If not, make me wither. Scary prayer. But the fact is God does not like show. He doesn't like pretense. He does not like hypocrisy. So let's be real. Just stand for prayer. And so, Father, my prayer is that we as a church uh, would be alive. That we would perhaps remember the things that we used to do at the first, repent and return to those things. That we would do good things, but they would be prompted by, produced by a a, a real spiritual life. 
And that as we go doing good things, we take Jesus and the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we take that with us. Otherwise, we're wasting our time. Uh, Trees with lots of shiny leaves, but no fruit, and worthy of only being cursed. So, Father, in me personally, in us individually, in us as a church, make us more alive than ever before, producing life, indeed eternity, lasting fruit. In Christ's name, amen.